Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Opioids, illegal and criminally distributed and sold fentanyl from China, is killing Canadians who come in contact with it and or who are buying it because of addiction. I spoke with Sam Cooper, Global News investigative reporter, about that. Her Twitter handle is Dirt Sweat and Tears at Farmer Megs. She's a young woman, Saskatchewan farmer, wife, and mom. And she has challenged politicians. And about a week ago, she had a bit of an encounter with the Federal Minister for the Environment and Climate Change, Catherine McKenna. You want to listen to how this conversation went. Huawei in the news, not only because of the arrest of the company's CFO in Canada, Global News reports Stephen Harper in a Fox News appearance urged Canada to support the United States' view that Huawei should not be allowed to participate in the emerging 5G network. Daniel Tobak CEO of Sci Intelligence Toronto, internationally recognized cybersecurity and digital forensics expert, had this to say. The political and legal side of the issue now re Huawei, China's state media, is lashing out at Canada over the arrest of the CFO of the company and warns Canada of serious consequences. And they summoned the Canadian ambassador to the government offices. Scott Newark joined me, professor at Simon Fraser University. And he has a lot of experience with issues surrounding China. Here's Scott's view. Major response to the interview I conducted with Lawrence Solomon concerning his widely reported on Financial Post column, if Alberta turns separatist, the rest of Canada is in big trouble. So because there was so much response, I played back that interview and then we opened the phone lines. The Hill newspaper in Washington is reporting that some Democrats in Congress are saying Donald Trump may be in serious trouble as far as connections with Russia are concerned. I spoke with Ari Goldkind, Toronto criminal lawyer and media commentator. Here's what Ari had to say about that. I'm going to begin with Sam Cooper, global news investigative reporter, and he's very, very good. If you were watching uh, on Global News, if you were watching the series that Sam and... uh, and other reporters, investigative reporters, for Global News did on the um, illicit, the illegal fentanyl entering Canada from China. It was remarkable work. And there was a a story filed December the 3rd, so a week ago tomorrow, co-written by Amanda Connolly, if helping China hunt fugitives is the price of stemming deadly fentanyl flow, should Canada pay? Sam Cooper joins me. On the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, Sam, thank you very much for the time. Thanks, Roy. You and uh, the Global News team have done a tremendous job with the investigative series, The Fentanyl Making a Killing, which dealt with, of course, the flooding of fentanyl into Canada. Just remind us, please, and put a face, if you will, into perspective to the issue of the flow of Chinese fentanyl killing thousands of Canadians annually. Right. Um, so the way we got into this series is we were having an investigative meeting and uh, there have been many reports, uh, in, including yours, on the, the different phases of uh, opioid addiction, opioid overdoses, and, and why fentanyl is killing so many people. So we, we came up with a question, who is making the big money on this uh, illicit fentanyl trade? Because the illicit fentanyl 
is the type that is driving the overdose death crisis. And that crisis is centered, the epicenter is in British Columbia, specifically the metro Vancouver area. And so we had some pretty good ideas of who it was, but we we dug a lot deeper and, and we found that indeed it's coming from the illicit precursors and fentanyl are coming from factories in China and uh, a gang based in China that has become very strong in Canada since the 1980s and 90s called the Big Circle Gang are the ones that uh, all the police experts, all of our sources, we talked to people across uh, agencies in Canada, were saying they are the ones that are at that pyramid of that transnational uh, organized crime structure that's making massive money off this drug and really, it makes sense when you think about it, because the, the evidence shows that they do get control of factories in China. They have uh, control of labs and uh, freedom, really, to use some shipping facilities in British Columbia. So they're bringing in the drug from China, and they're finding ways to deal it out across North America and really launder a massive amount of money in casinos and real estate in B.C., but send an even more massive amount of money back to China to produce more fentanyl and ship it in. So there's a cycle going between uh, BC and China, and that's what we found is driving this death crisis. Sam, nothing we assume, nothing happens in China without the at least tacit approval of their of their national government. And Canada, in order to secure Chinese assistance, you write in the piece uh, from last Monday, uh, in order to secure Chinese assistance in slowing the flow of criminal fentanyl entering this country, may have to agree to help hunting the Chinese government's targeted list of fugitives. What did you find out? And that's a bit of a predicament. Well, no, it's much more than a bit of a predicament for our country. It's a, a massive predicament, and there's many sides to it, but it's really becoming clear for anyone that's following international news that the rule of law doesn't exist in China. It does exist in Canada and uh, the United States. And so we're at a, a sticking point um, a dichotomy where in British Columbia, many corrupt officials, many what are called state actors even, that would be people that may be working with uh, the Chinese government in, same, in some way, may be working with gangsters in some way, people that don't have Canada's interest uh, at, at the front. There's many criminals that have run away from China or may even be working with China that are based in B.C., and this is worrying Canadian uh, officials, it's we're in the United States, but uh, as our story showed, there was a, a sort of a front being put up that Canada and China are working together to reduce this fentanyl coming in, but what our series found was that behind the scenes, that's really not the case. There's a big fight going on where uh, China wants to send police agents into British Columbia so that they can bring home some of these big suspects and please uh, their national audience, I suppose. But Canada is worried about uh, these agents being spies. And really, this, uh, the issue uh, became even more clear. If you follow the news, there's a, a woman who is the CEO of a massive Chinese technology company was just arrested in Vancouver, and there's a, an extradition battle going on with the states. And China has uh, reacted very angrily to that, to that action by Canada. So it, it just shows that... Behind the scenes, it's coming out into the open now that Canada and China really are finding a hard way to get along. Yeah, we're going to be speaking about the Huawei situation a little later on in the program from two different perspectives. 
So, Sam, as I understand from the story, your story, and Amanda's story, officially Canada says China is assisting. Privately, you've been told, that's not the case. And if we, as in Canada, don't do what China wants, the situation will deteriorate further. You spoke about that with the federal public safety minister. What came out of that? Yes, uh, um, well, we we have talked to uh, Minister Goodale, and we asked him a number of questions to respond to our series. One being, can you give uh, the RCMP more money to, to go after money laundering? Because we're hearing that the force just doesn't have the tools, resources, or, or the training to do this. We also asked him, is this, uh, do we need a public inquiry in B.C.? And is China doing enough? Is China working with Canada to stop this flow of uh, of a terrible drug that's killing so many Canadians? And he said, uh, Mr. Goodoyle said, uh, we've seen a little bit of a start, but it's not enough. So that's the position of the federal government. They've acknowledged that China isn't doing enough. And yet they do say China has acknowledged there's a problem. However, behind the scenes, what we're hearing, the people that... Uh, would be in the the policing and military world. The sources are telling us that there's really little or no action, and China doesn't see this as a high priority. And when you negotiate with China, they want something back. So they're saying, if you want us to act on on fentanyl, Canada needs to give us some concessions in terms of China's will to go after corruption suspects that have absconded to Canada from China. And so again, we're back to that sticking point. Canada can't easily extradite or send back people to China because we don't have an extradition uh, treaty with China because there are fears that if you send someone back, they may or may not be guilty and they could be executed. So we always seem to come back to that position. And we talked to a number of ambassadors, uh, Canadian former ambassadors to China. They said China does use these tactics. Canada started raising the fentanyl issue in 2016. China hasn't responded, but indeed they have said, you need to work with us on corruption suspects. And so we're at a sticking point, and uh, in the meantime, Canadians are dying. And as you said, uh, now with the Huawei situation having developed and China being furious with Canada about that, that's not going to help any cooperative venture with China. But uh, what about the RCMP? Uh, I I found it very interesting that you found out and you wrote about the RCMP neither being trained nor having the resources or the strategic focus to tackle the laundered drug money situation. That's right. We found that there, first of all, there was what looked like a very competent and uh, forceful international investigation into a big casino money laundering and underground banking case between Richmond, B.C. and China, and it fell apart. So what looked like a positive development only served to, to, to prove the point that the RCMP is overmatched here. And... There's an irony. There are some excellent officers that found a way to study the exact scale of the suspected money laundering in Vancouver, and they found that it's about a billion dollars per year uh, in a conservative uh, conservative uh, study that uh, a criminal networks, including drug traffickers, are laundering, in, laundering into high-end homes. So they know the problems there, but they're saying we don't have the resources to tackle this. So really, it's a, it's a no-win situation. There needs to be some improvement, and the government, uh, the officials we've talked to, acknowledge that the RCMP needs, uh, needs more, but there's been no promise to give more funding or any action plan. You know, the more you're sharing with me, the more it's obvious to everybody what a tremendous job you've done with this investigative series, Fentanyl, 
making a killing. It really is a, it's an eye-opener. And there's billions of dollars of criminal fentanyl proceeds being laundered through British Columbia. Um, any, I mean, what, what, are the, uh, what do we know about that? And, and uh, is there, I, I guess you just told us that the RCMP aren't equipped to, to deal with that. That's right. Most recently with this study, this secret study that took hundreds of hours of federal researcher time looking into internal government criminal databases and intelligence, matching them to property purchases in Vancouver, they found over a billion dollars connected to criminal networks uh, connected to China. In 2016, our investigation team had uh, data on uh, casino money laundering that's related, and we looked at the real estate price growth in Vancouver, we looked at the fentanyl death, uh, pri- the, the, the surge, the exponential surge in death, and we were able to estimate that since 2012 to 2017, there's about $5 billion in money laundering. Wow. And beyond that, we talked to experts that said, look, you're just start- your team is just starting to shed the light on this, but this has been happening since the 1990s. It's not coincidental for anyone that knows Vancouver, that you see the, the death and destruction in the downtown east side due to heroin. This has been happening for decades, and our source told us that people would be stunned to know how much drug money has built homes in Vancouver, and it's just, uh, it's there, but no one seems to be able to do anything about it. Well, you also, uh, you wrote that B.C. Premier John Horgan argues a public inquiry into what global news uncovered would be too costly. I, mean, I can't wrap my head around that. I, I think you're among um, many uh, reasonable analysts that can't get that either, because if we're talking about billions of dollars in money laundering, uh, thousands of deaths, we're talking about uh, middle-class families being forced out of Vancouver because they can't afford to live there. Certainly, we've proven that drug traffickers have moved prices, it's believed, in certain neighborhoods. So the destruction is total to society. I mean, not total, but it's it's teetering, and yet you can't spend say, $50 million on a Charbonneau-style commission to reverse that trend. I don't get that either, and I think uh, public will for an inquiry is there. And from my test of the pulse out there, people are willing to pay that price or more. Um, it's, it's, it's a really small amount of money, considering the, uh, the, the, the scope of what you found out and then uh, finding out that likely, you know, it's multiple times larger because it's been going on for so long. Sam, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the Sunday. Really appreciate it. Great work. Thanks a lot, Roy. All the best. Sam Cooper, investigative reporter, Global News. And uh, Scooper Cooper is his, at Scooper Cooper is his Twitter handle. Her Twitter handle is Dirt, Sweat, and Tears at Farmer Megs, M-E-G-Z-Z. You know, as in Z-Z top. Uh, a dirt, sweat, and tears at Farmer Meg's. And she's a young woman, Saskatchewan farmer, wife and mom. Her words, as I said earlier, I'm not being a toxic male. And Meg's has challenged politicians' misconceptions about farming. She's done that on Twitter, and many people will remember in 2017, last year, her challenges of the Federal Minister of Finances pending legislation affecting small business went viral. We talked to her at that time. Well, about a week or so ago, Megs engaged in an exchange with the federal minister of the environment, who you just heard, Catherine McKenna, and the minister voiced certain assumptions about farming and Megs' style of farming 
and instructed her, if I have this correctly, and I watched the tweet, and you can too, at Farmer Megs, uh, on how to be a responsible farmer. And the result of that encounter is available, as I said. Now, Megs, you have no intention of t- turning this into a political issue, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a good story to tell, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Ray. So, so tell, first of all, tell us about the farm. How, how large is it? What do you grow? Do you raise cattle? Because that's a climate issue for people, <laughs> right? Uh, and we know why. It has to do with methane. Uh, and, and, and how expensive is it for you to operate your farm during an average year? And how expensive during a year when Mother Nature doesn't cooperate? Well, this spring we seeded 2,100 acres, um, and then we picked up uh, about another section this fall in rental uh, land as well. So we we don't run any cattle. My father-in-law has 20 head that he calves out, but we personally don't have any cattle. We're just the grain side. Um, For how much it costs, uh, that fluctuates. My prices are always changing with my inputs, my fuel. all of that factors into that cost. But I just wanted to break down a little example. If they're running at a cost of 300 an acre, which um, including your land, your mortgages, your rent, uh, your equipment costs, your inputs, um, inputs being the seed, the fertilizer, the chemicals needed to take care of that crop while you're in the growing season. Uh, so 300 an acre is possible for a grain farm. There's grain farms that will be more than that. There's grain farms that will be less than that. Um, a lot of that depends on how long land has been in the family, whether it's paid for or not, what your equipment costs are. So that times 25 acres, you're looking at $750,000 basically to operate. So uh, That's a lot of money. It is a lot of money. And um, on top of that, you know, I had numbers based off a parliamentary budget report that uh, carbon tax, if put forced on at $50 a ton, would add an additional $30,000 to that as well. So and is this this how the, uh, I'm sorry, were you going to say add something to that? I was just going to touch on the weather piece. Sure, sure, yeah, The weather could affect those numbers in so many different ways. It could be like this year where we're in drought, so I'm not able to grow the crop that I'm hoping to be able to grow bushel-wise to be able to cover those costs. Or it could be um, a hailstorm that comes in in the fall that not only uh, destroys some of my crop, but then might lead to me having to swap some of it, so extra time and fuel before harvesting it. Um, It could lead to... Like this harvest with a lot of farmers, they had snow, they were stopped on and off, they had to dry a lot of the grain that was coming off the field. So that was a huge additional cost to be able to be drying that grain. You're using either propane or natural grass, all the extra time and trucking and labor. So weather can influence in so many different ways, and it can also drive your commodity prices on a global scale. So mm-hmm. it's it's a huge uh, fluctuation for us. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a tough industry, it's a, but it's so... Incredibly important. I, you know, most of us go to the grocery store and we see and we purchase the you know the the fruits of your labor. But you you really love to farm. You love the farming uh, life, and I know that from following you on Twitter. Uh, you and your family. But how many hours a, w- a day or a week are, do you, are you prepared to work? Do you have to be prepared to work? <laughs> well, that again depends too on the season. Um, seeding and harvest is usually when we put in the most hours. I could be looking at a fifteen to eighteen hour day. Um, especially if there's something that goes wrong or even if things are going smoothly and we have the weather to keep going. Um, other times a year, if you've got a grain contract that get, gets called in and you have X amount of time to get X amount of bushels to the elevator, then suddenly you might be hauling nonstop as long as they're taking that grain still. Um, if you get into uh, your 
fungicides and insecticides for helping a crop grow, then that all has a window when it has to happen. So it really fluctuates with what's going on on the farm at that time. But we can we can definitely get into areas where we're putting in 18-hour um, days. We're not sleeping much, and we're not seeing our family a lot. Yeah. Tell us about the exchange with the Environment Minister, uh, about what you spoke about on, uh, on on your tweet, because she appeared to be, if I understood this correctly, to be the, she appeared to be in the mood to lecture you on 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 how to farm responsibly. She did. I actually rewatched it this morning um, just to kind of go over it, and and she talked about all of these great innovations that are helping or sorry happening in agriculture, uh, like minimum till or zero till, which is basically comes down to how much we disturb that soil. Um, uh, the different data management programs we could be using, soil sampling, AI, all of these things that farmers and then encourage farmers that we need to take those on um, because if we don't start changing to that method of farming, um, then we're not going to be sustainable. I do all of those things already. So she challenged me to use less water. I'm a dryland farmer. I only get to use the rain that physically falls. I don't create anything myself. I soil sample all of my fields. So I'm not putting down any more fertilizer or nutrients for that crop than is actually needed. I tissue sample during the crop season to make sure that everything is targeted for that plant. Again, we're not doing anything that doesn't need to be done. We're scouting our fields. We don't use chemicals more than we have to, um, not only to be sustainable, but all of this stuff costs us money. So we are doing all of these things that she suggested. So it was a little insulting, and it just showed the disconnect that is going on right now. Yeah, it just sounded to me like there was a superiority complex here. That, I mean, she, the, the, the minister came off like she was the ag expert, and and you were sort of the rookie who was just getting into the field, and she was going to tell you that's a terrible pun. I didn't even intend it. Uh, you know, getting into the field, uh, but but you. You're the, I mean, you're the person who loves what you do. You're you do all the things that uh, that that the minister uh, suggested that you should do. Uh, have you heard back from her or anybody in the department after you went on Twitter and everybody can see it at, at Farger, Farmer Megs? Um, have you heard back from anybody at the ministry? Well, there was a farmer in Ontario that shared the video and said that me and Minister McKenna should get together for dinner, which I thought would be a great idea. It would be. I think beneficial to both sides to have a conversation. I think there needs to be a much larger understanding of agriculture and a conversation about the fact that agriculture is part of the solution, uh, not part of the problem when it comes to their climate planning and climate change. Um, And she responded that that was a great idea, and I haven't heard anything out of her office since then. Well, let's hope that that that's not going to happen, but I would love if it did. Well, let's put a little pressure on here because I think that it's I think it's an excellent idea because you're very committed to what you're doing. You're doing it in the manner of the farming, in the manner that the minister suggested that you should. So she had no idea what you were doing, but she was still going to tell you what to do. So I, 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 I think it would be great for the two of you to sit down, and then I'd, I'd like to speak with you afterward. I think that would be wonderful. I think an important part of this piece is that farmers are the original environmentalists. We need our, our land, our soil, um, our weather. Those are all things that we need to be able to farm and to be successful. We need to take care of them. We know that we need to take care of them. And so we're out here pushing, trying to become more sustainable. And, and part of that is working with what we're given. So it's important to note that there are areas in Canada that are wetter areas that they can't farm the way that I farm with zero till because they wouldn't be able to seed in spring. So part of that, how to be the best, the most environmental farmer is also looking at the area that farmer is in and the climate that they're in because they have 
uh, tools and farming methods that work for them that don't necessarily work for another area. So it's a little more complex than than sitting in your office telling someone how to do the best job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, most of us, uh, our, our knowledge of, uh, of, of agriculture and food production begins and ends with the uh, best before date on packaging. That's about all we know, right? But you were, I, I, I'd like to suggest to Premier Scott Moe of Saskatchewan, who was on the show yesterday, Premier, get in your vehicle now, drive over and see um, Megs and convince her to run for office. I think you would be, I think it would be fantastic. I I would I would I would I would move to Saskatchewan and just to vote for you. Oh, thanks for that, right? No, yeah, no, you're terrific. And you have people you get people thinking and you're engaged in something that is fundamentally so important to all of us and that is agricultural production. You provide the food that we require and uh, you deserve all the respect and and all the uh, all the kudos that that need to come your way. Mags, thanks so much for joining us. And if you do have that lunch or dinner with the minister, uh, join us again, will you? I will let you know if it happens. Thanks so much for having me. All right, take good care. At Farmer Mags, and that's with two Zs. At Farmer Mags. You might not say, oh, what does a gender lens have to do with building this new highway or this new uh, pipeline or something? Well, uh, you know, there are gender impacts. When you bring construction workers into a rural area, there are social impacts because uh, they're mostly male construction workers. How are you adjusting and adapting to those? That's what the gender lens in GBA plus budgeting is all about. These are all things that we've been doing, not to be nice or to be better or to be moral, but to be smart about getting the very best out of all of our citizens and making the very best out of our economy because women entrepreneurs tend to make choices than, uh, than, uh, than others. We've seen it study after study. So this is all something that I see the world moving on in many ways. Leaders are moving on, uh, but the business community needs, needs to wake up and move on as well. And that's certainly something that uh, Sharzad here has done a lot of work on. Jocelyn Bamford is the founder of the Coalition of Concerned Manufacturers and Businesses of Canada. She's a very active business owner with her husband, and uh, she has an op-ed piece uh, in the Toronto Sun headlined, Women Need to Fight Trudeau's Gender Insults Toward Men. Did you hear, Jocelyn, did you hear the Prime Minister say this businesses have to be aware of what he's telling you you need to do? Yeah, I was, uh, I was stunned by that. And that on behalf of not only my son and my husband and my, uh, my male colleagues and the people, the males that work in our company, I was completely offended. Um, can you imagine if he had said the same thing, but instead of saying men, he said women? What a complete outrage there would be, um, not only across the country, but across, around the world. And uh, we, we need to stop the madness and push back against not just this, but a whole variety of things that this prime minister says that are not helpful to moving the economy and the country forward. So uh, your, uh, your, your op-ed piece uh, has had quite a bit of response. It, it, it did. Uh, as early as 7.30 this morning, I got uh, messages from folks that said, uh, finally, some common sense. How do I join? What can we do? Uh, so I think it really struck a nerve with a lot of people that are the silent majority that feel the same way, that men do not need to be vilified and that women uh, don't need to be uh, treated with kick gloves. Uh, you know, I started my career in a male-dominant um, industry, 
and, and I work in manufacturing today, and I always tell women the best way to close the uh, inequity in salary gap is to take one of those uh, careers that allow you to, to, to drive the big money and go in the non-traditional jobs, and that's how you'll uh, close the wage gap, by taking those jobs. But you don't do it by vilifying men and, uh, and having some of the programs that Trudeau subscribes to. Uh, you wrote in part, are you upset that this man has just insulted some of your brothers and fathers for their work? Are you troubled that this man and many others are taking us down a road to ruin with an economic plan that focuses on gender and inclusion, not jobs and growth? Are you getting concerned that this man is obsessed about arbitrary and ridiculous emissions targets that the rest of the world is largely ignoring? He's giving a whole new meaning to we'll always have Paris. Uh, if you are, join me. I'm going to work with others to push back on the madness. And in the meantime, would some real men please stand up? Don't be afraid. You have truth on your side, and I will be there to support you. I'm standing up. Yay, I'm glad. And I need men, other men need to stand up. And, and we need to push back because this isn't right. And the longer we sit quietly by and allow this to be not only spoken by our prime minister, but taught in our classrooms and perpetuated in media, the, the longer that goes on, the worse off our society will be. Jocelyn, thank you for joining us here. Terrific. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jocelyn Bamford. I'm joined by Daniel Tobuk. He's been on this program on a number of occasions. He's the CEO of Scientelligence, Inc. in Toronto, internationally recognized cybersecurity and digital forensics expert. Daniel, thank you for the time. Thanks for having me on. So the, the Huawei issue, uh, the, the United States government says they shouldn't be part of the 5G network. Mr. Harper saying the same thing. What are the, what are the concerns, uh, and are the concerns about Huawei and China legitimate? So, you know, the concerns are very interesting. Uh, the actual concerns, uh, there's really two parts of them. Number one, uh, it's directly with Huawei where they are uh, uh, dealing with, with countries that are in current conflict and embargo with the United States and, and apparently violated direct, uh, direct uh, protocols associated to that uh, through shell companies and so on. We haven't seen yet proof surface up with exact facts around that, but that was uh, the statements that were made by, uh, by the U.S. On another side, uh, they are also part of placing the critical infrastructure in place in Canada for the 5G network. I mean, we're looking at Talos investing a billion dollars, BCE, Rogers. So a lot of money is being invested in building that infrastructure, leveraging uh, Hawaii and actual uh, products and, uh, and infrastructure that they provide. The problem with that, and this is not again a slam against Huawei, it's it's a slam because in in the Republic of China, under their national security guide, in particular Article Seven, it states that at the moment that the state feels that the information that a private business holds can be beneficial or needs to go under the control of the state, they have a right every right to do that. The problem with Hawaii being mixed up in here, really, in the crossfire, is that if they're building that infrastructure, they will potentially have access to data that flows to that infrastructure. 
So that's really how the dots are connected with the risk that the U.S. is voicing regarding leveraging their infrastructure for such what I call critical operation within a country. Yeah, you know, I took for granted that everybody knows what 5G is, but not not everybody does. And honestly, uh, I know it's a lot faster, but I'm not familiar with all of the, with the necessaries. So can you fill us in on that? Uh, absolutely. So, I mean, this is going to be the, the new, we are right now operating mainly on 4G and there's been different upgrades and so on. 5G is the next generation, fifth generation wireless, uh, which is really the latest iteration uh, of cellular technology. Uh, again, not to get into the real technical weeds here, but it's engineered to greatly increase the speed and res- responsiveness of wireless networks. It's really the next level where every cell phone is going to be connected to and uh, the internet is going to be uh, a part of that as well. So our basically evolution from a connectivity and data point of view will be on 5G, which is for the fifth generation. Yeah, and this is going to be extremely fast and everybody's going to be on it. And the potential for, I suppose, the potential for any state-sponsored uh, company that wants to compromise it is huge. Absolutely. Again, so it's going to be a great convenience for consumers, businesses, and so on. We're just going to be able to do things faster. It's almost like something out of a science fiction flick from 25 years ago. Um, but again, the problem is that we are turning that all of our calls, everything that we do is going to go down to data, right? Data packets that are flowing through. If somebody has access to that network, you literally don't need to wiretap anyone, if you know what I mean. You have access to their data. Yeah. Uh, looking at the global news story, currently the Trudeau government is one of the only members of the uh, Five Eyes intelligence community who has refused to bar Huawei equipment from being used in the infrastructure that will support 5G networks. Is is that of particular significance that uh, we're one of the, maybe the only one? Yeah, again, Huawei is a great company. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a personal fan. I, I think they have great products, great uh, technologies, great infrastructure. Again, they're just, unfortunately, are falling in, in a very interesting, you know, what I call global political, and uh, there is some true security concerns around that infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, you know, the five eyes, you look at England, England just pulled out out of leveraging their infrastructure for the 5G network because of those security concerns. So New Zealand, Australia, England, and now U.S., of course, U.S. is not going to be using them. We're the only ones. I, I always feel I, I, there is a way we can work with them. I just think we need to put some more perimeters in place to assure Canadian citizens that their information is secure. Uh, Daniel, how secure is is our uh, is are our online services just generically? You know, we we hear we heard a, was about two weeks ago that a, was a hotel chain half a million or half a billion people's uh, information might have been compromised. I forget which hotel chain it was, but it's Marriott. just Marriott. Yeah, so it's one story, and then everybody kind of takes a deep breath and recovers a little bit, and then off we go again. It's another one, and it's another one. Now, uh, what's the problem? Is it that is it that there are gaps in security, or is it the problem largely that corporations are not doing what they should be doing and could be doing as far as spending money on on on, on assuring proper security? Uh, it's a very good question. I might need about three and a half hours, but I'll keep it really short. <laughs> well, I'll, g- I'll give you two and a half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
you know, one of the fundamental issues today with the Internet is that it wasn't designed to be secure, right? When, when you look at a car, a car is designed to be secure because they understand the people are going to be driving, you need brakes, you need windows, you need seatbelts, and so on. The Internet was not developed from the ground up to be secure, so there's gaps inherently, okay? The problem is that as consumers, we rely so much on technology and, and we have the convenience of technology at our hands but we pay a price for it because we bypass security and certain logic. With businesses, it really comes down to what is the budget and what is the level of risk that they want to accept. Um, unfortunately, uh, most of the problems today are, you know, unlike the old days where everything was about brute force attacks and bypassing systems, today it's a 70-30. 70% of the breaches occur because of what I call the human factor. Uh, somebody received an anonymous email that fished him out and compromised his credentials. Somebody clicked on a link. Uh, the bad guys were able to bypass certain systems by faking to be an employee. So today, the human factor that reverse engineering plays a major role in the way bad guys get into systems. Uh, China itself uh, is a country that is constantly talked about as it, as it makes uh, huge inroads into every part of global infrastructure. And uh, it's generally assumed, I think probably with some justification or significant justification, that any major corporate activity or company activity emanating from China has either the blessing or the tacit support of the government of China. So when you're dealing with a Chinese corporation, are you not in, a, in effect dealing with the Chinese government and doesn't that make things exponentially, potentially more difficult? Uh, so again, I, 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 I'm, I'm never uh, a fan of uh, painting everybody with the same, uh, same brush. Uh, there's always good and bad apples in, in every basket. Uh, again, some countries are just uh, a little bit more aggressive in their uh, approach to collection of intelligence and data harvesting. Uh, there's hundreds of thousands of uh, really amazing companies in China uh, that all they're trying to do is manufacture and push their product. Unfortunately, again, different jurisdictions fall under different rules due to the political climate in that country at the time. Um, so, again, and that's, that's really around the world. I mean, it's, you look at the, the former Soviet Union and where they are today. You right. look at parts of Africa. You look at parts of Asia. It really comes down to the political climate and that particular control over businesses and what they have to adhere to. We're just learning, I think, individually, just as, as Internet users, uh, unless we're somebody with your, you know, close to your qualifications and skills, but the average person uh, just gets on a website and it says, you understand that if you continue to use this site, uh, we, have, we use cookies, and uh, by using the site, you're agreeing that we, uh, you know, are you, you're agreeing that we can use cookies to, uh, to monitor you or whatever, this, whatever those agreements say. We're <laughs> just starting to realize just how significantly important that is. Absolutely. I mean, we really have to understand that the Internet is not a private uh, type of way of communication. I mean, I, I always say this, if you don't want it to be posted on, you know, the Globe and Mail's front page uh, with your picture beside it, then don't say it publicly on Facebook or don't send it in an email. It's really that simple. So uh, 10 years from now, where are we going to be? You know, where I'm really hoping where we're going to be is that on, on, the, on the front with uh, dealing with cyber criminals, we're going to have better legislation where we're going to have global cooperation in dealing with this particular problem. 
Uh, unfortunately, today, a lot of criminals in different jurisdictions are untouchable from us. I mean, we literally cannot get an extradition order because we have somebody tied to a computer crime. So I hopefully that will change over the next 10 years. And another one is really the maturity. I feel that technology today is, has moved a lot faster than the average person's literacy when it comes to the Internet and the pros and cons and the security issues that are associated with them. So I'm hoping that in the next 10 years, we, the, the, the balance are going to get a little bit better. It's going to be tilted toward, uh, toward a more educated society that understands what to do, what not to do, and cybercrime is going to be lowered. Yeah, and so the, your password isn't uh, first name 12334, one, one, right? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it's often been said, and I, I think you may have said it on this program in the past, that technology is constantly staying ahead of of uh, of, of legal or at least uh, legislative action, and legislatures have to catch up with technology. Tough thing to do. It's a consistent cat and mouse game, absolutely. Daniel, always great talking to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. Bye bye. Bye bye. Daniel Tobak, he's one of the best CEO of Sci Intelligence in Toronto, internationally recognized cybersecurity and digital forensics expert. The issue of Huawei continues to really circulate around the globe. Andrew Russell writing on uh, Global News, the arrest of Huawei's technology's chief financial officer, Meng Wan Zhou, is being compared to a, quote, kidnapping, end quote, by China's state media as fury continues to grow in Beijing with more demands for her release. The top executive with the Chinese telecom giant was arrested in Vancouver December 1, as we know, at the request of the United States, which is seeking her extradition on allegations that Huawei violated U.S. sanctions against Iran. Um, let's see now. Among's arrest has infuriated China, and its state-run media is lashing out at Canada. Quote, without any solid evidence, the Canadian and U.S. governments trampled on international law by basically kidnapping Chinese citizen. Meng Wanzhou, the chief financial officer of Huawei, a research fellow with the Ministry of Commerce, wrote for the Global Times, a tabloid owned by the Communist Party of China. Scott Newark joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network, professor at Simon Fraser University. He teaches a course on terrorism and civil liberties, Canadian comparative and international perspectives, is also an international security expert and advisor to the federal and Ontario governments post 9-11. And he's my friend, which is probably the most important part of your CV. <laughs> Number one on the resume, yeah. <laughs> Should be. Hey, so what? Uh, what's your interpretation of uh, you? You're very familiar with yeah. with China and Chinese espionage uh, issues. You've been at that for more than twenty years. How do you interpret what's going on? Um, I don't believe in coincidences, and the. Um the fact that uh, the United States and uh, China are in, um, you know, a obvious uh, international trade dispute, and in fact, on the day that the uh, President Trump was meeting with President Xi Jinping to, and they agreed to come up with, a, in effect, to delay things for 90 days, and that's the day, by remarkable coincidence, that this senior official uh, gets arrested. And just to be clear. And without going into all of the detail of this, the bottom line about this stuff is this is the way the Chinese use, um, uh, this is part of their espionage strategy, that they actually use companies uh, that do business around the world to gain 
strategic advantage, whether that's in stealing intellectual property or in accessing and potentially compromising systems. And as you mentioned in the introduction, Huawei is one of the actual giants in that. Um, and the people that run it, her is the, the guy that runs the company is her father. He's a former People Liberation Army general. Uh, and countries around the world are realizing the security implications of this. So the fact that this gets done, you know, on a Saturday night, and oh, and I checked, she was on a Cathay Pacific uh, airline flight into Vancouver, okay, that the Americans somehow got information about it. And we have a formalized process under our Extradition Act where we have a literally a formal agreement with the Americans that we will agree on defined grounds if they make a request that we arrest somebody. We have to go to court. It's called a provisional warrant, and all of that was... Uh, sorry, first you've got to go to get the permission of the Minister of Justice, and then you actually have to go to court to get the provisional warrant authorized, all of which was done. Um, and this is also very strange, Roy, when you try to go through the details of what it is, because we extradite people back to countries like the United States if what they are alleged to have done constitutes a crime in Canada, okay? And it sounds like, when it was originally reported, what this was about was Huawei essentially uh, uh, lying to avoid the sanctions on Iran by having this bogus company that they said they didn't control, and they needed to use the U.S. financial institutions to move money uh, out of that, and that's why they were lying to the banks. Well, two things really strike me as odd about this is, number one, um, is this about the sanctions, or is somehow what they're saying is that this is actually some kind of criminal fraud? Okay, and the second one, which is really strange, um, normally in cases like this, and in another Chinese uh, competitor called ZTE, it's the company that gets charged. And yet in this case, it's the individual that gets charged. And so the issue about whether or not, you know, this is uh, Donald Trump exercising some leverage against the Chinese, and, the, uh, and this, this woman has been aware that this investigation has been going on for a yeah. number of years. i got about 30 seconds, Scott. And she hasn't been uh, to the United States because she knows she'd probably get arrested. So it, it seems to me that this may be a circumstance of where essentially we're just being caught in the middle as the Americans are exercising, flexing the muscles, if you will. Yeah, thanks so much, always, huh? All right, Appreciate Roy. the time. Keep Scott, an eye on this story. I'm sorry? Keep an eye on this story. Yeah, and we'll stay in touch with you, too. All right. All right, thanks, Bye-bye. Scott Newark. Simon Fraser University, and he really knows a lot about uh, Chinese intelligence issues. We had the opportunity to speak with Mr. Solomon yesterday. And then after that, I started to get so many emails. I answered uh, as many as I could. Sorry if I didn't answer yours. I did read them all. Uh, and they're still coming in. And there was quite a bit of activity on uh, Twitter as well, at the Roy Green Show. So what I decided to do, and we took some phone calls, and the phone, the phone lines were just, I, everything was jammed. So what I've decided to do is I'm going to play back the interview for you now, and then we'll take some more phone calls, and we'll ask you the, essentially the same question we asked yesterday. But first, have a listen. Many people may not have heard this. You might not have been with us yesterday. Here is uh, my conversation with Lauren Solomon on his column, If Alberta... Um, uh, now I lost the title. Anyway, if Alberta were to leave Confederation, uh, if Alberta turns separatist, the rest of Canada is in big trouble. Here's how it went. You, you mentioned the uh, in the beginning of the column, you mentioned an ECOS poll which gives politicians cover if they refuse to support getting oil out of the ground. Would you speak to that, please? Well, apart from conservatives, uh, 
the majority of, of the country sees little value in developing oil and gas. Uh, just 8% of liberals think that uh, it's more important to develop oil and gas than to, than to go green and, in fact, to regulate oil and gas to make it more difficult for, for development to occur. So there's very little, very little support um, in, mo- in most of the country for the Alberta economy, in effect. It's really uh, it's it's stunning that people could be so short-sighted and not recognize just how significantly important oil and gas is to our national economy, and just how many daily products the people who feel that it's not important they use, and without which their days would likely be hijacked. It, it is short-sighted, and and it's heading in a in a, a very dangerous um, direction for the rest of Canada. If if uh, Albertans get inflamed m- much more and decide to leave uh, Canada, the rest of Canada would be in, in, in serious trouble. Albertans would be just fine. They would actually be better off um, if they left Canada. But but for the rest of the country, we would see uh, the, the the dollar plummet because oil is, is our single biggest uh, source of foreign exchange. We'd see inflation in the rest of the country. Alberta would be insulated from that because it... It gets uh, oil revenue in, in U.S. dollars. Uh, we we would see uh, investment plummet, uh, and we would become a major oil importer <laughs> because without without Alberta, there isn't enough oil in, in the rest of the country now. Say Saskatchewan and, and Newfoundland, the other oil producers, wouldn't be able to meet uh, Canada's uh, energy needs not not by a long shot. So suddenly we'd become oil importers. So for Canada, it would be an absolute disaster if Alberta chose uh, to leave the country. And we'd be importing Albertan oil. That's right. <laughs> we'd be importing <laughs> Am- Am- Albertan oil. That's, you know, everybody should just think about that for a moment. Uh, just think about that for a moment. Now, you you, you write that uh, Albertans, um, uh, the, the idea that Alberta would be punished or would somehow be negatively affected because the province is landlocked, is also not clear thinking. That's right. Alberta really holds all the cards. If, if Alberta were an independent country, it would, it would control uh, not only the, the territory of Alberta, but also the airspace above Alberta. So there are international treaties that need to be uh, entered into in order, in order for a plane to cross uh, sovereign territory. Uh, Canada, as it turns out, negotiates indi- uh, in- individually with every country that it, that it, that it permits uh, mutual rights to, to cross territory. So uh, Alberta would be in a position to prevent uh, flights from, say, Vancouver to uh, to Montreal or Toronto, without without uh, agreement from the, from the rest of the of the country. Um, similarly. For any train to cross Alberta, for any truck to cross Alberta, um, that would require Alberta's permission. The BC ports, it's a big part of the BC economy, they depend on traffic through Alberta uh, both, both directions. Um, they, they need, they need the, the exports from BC go through Alberta and, and imports um, into Canada through the BC ports leave uh, via Alberta. So, uh, Alberta would have an immense leverage, and as soon as the rest of Canada woke up to that, 
it would immediately capitulate. It would, it would have no choice but to say, of course, bring your, your, your pipelines through our territory. Pipelines, after all, have a negligible environmental effect. They're underground, very, very low rate of spillage. Um, and when there is spillage, it, it, the environmental damage is, is temporary and minimal. So it, there's only political posturing has prevented the pipelines from, from being built uh, east and west. And that posturing would, would quickly end once, uh, once uh, the eyes of, of other Canadians were open to the, to the damage that would be done if, if uh, they continued to pressure Alberta in this way. Yeah, and wipe the fairy dust out of their eyes. <laughs> right. Now, you, you also point out on the column that breakaway countries, and in no way do you promote the, the Alberta leaving uh, the Confederation. That's not the point of your column. I want to make that clear. But you look at what Alberta's options are and what the realities would be if Albertans were to get to the point. Maybe some of them are there now. I don't know. Um, I certainly see emails and, and tweets to that, uh, to that effect. But I don't know what the numbers and the percentages are. But you're saying that breakaway countries have done quite well on their own over the last, what, 50 years or so, or maybe even longer. That's right. The, the long history is that, is that breakaway countries generally do very well. Um, and in the case of Alberta, that, that would certainly be the case because Alberta holds so many cards. Alberta is a major, has a major economy uh, through its oil, and that makes it economically powerful. It also makes it geopolitically powerful. Uh, oil, oil is an important factor. So Al- Alberta really has all the elements of a successful state. It's a, an advanced <clears throat> society, well-educated workforce, skilled workforce, and abundant resources. What, what more would any country need? Not only that, you quite accurately raise the specter of a return to perhaps a sentiment of separation from Canada, from Quebec. And let's remember that the current premier of Quebec is a former minister in the Parti Québécois. That's just a, that's just a sidebar, but you do bring up the issue of, well, Quebecers may revisit their whole philosophy about breakaway Quebec or certainly you know separatism in Quebec is, is, is something that, that that doesn't go away forever it, it keeps coming back and uh, if Quebec lost for example um, the uh, equalization payments that that come to it a lot of it courtesy Alberta it would suddenly feel hard done by um, if it lost uh, its share of the uh, quotas across the country uh, in dairy, because Alberta said no thanks, uh, it would feel hard done by. So it, there would be new grievances uh, in Quebec that would justify a, a resurgence of, of separatist sentiment. And sentiment for separation actually exists in other areas too. The, the, in the Maritimes, there's often been uh, separatist sentiment. Um, it's e- very easy to see the country break away uh, if Alberta chooses to leave, you know, Canada really must do everything it can to, 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 to change the, the, the current culture that demonizes Alberta, uh, primarily because of its oil sands, but not just because of its oil sands. Yeah, Lawrence, I uh, earlier this year was speaking with the Premier of Saskatchewan, Scott Moe, who's going to be with us a little later today, on the Premier's conference, and this was at the time that British Columbia was uh, was challenging, uh, was 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 saying no to TMX 
and uh, they were in um, conversation with the federal government and uh, with Premier Notley and and Premier Mo asked the question, you know, if 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 a country, if a, one province like British Columbia, could have this kind of individual um, uh, weight in the argument or the, the the question about extending Trans Mountain, do we still have a country? And I found that to be a really significant and important question, and it came from a premier, a sitting premier, of one of our provinces, and that just un- to me underscores. What your column's all about? Well, the, the the problem really lies with the federal government because it has uh, been timid, and not just the current government, but past governments as well. It, they've been timid to assert federal rights uh, for cross uh, provincial trade. Mm-hmm. Um, the federal government has constitutional authority to force pipelines in any direction it wants, but it's it's afraid of the political consequences. Well, the political consequence of not doing that would be much, much greater uh, if, if an Alberta chose to leave. So there's my interview with Lawrence Solomon from yesterday. If Alberta turns separatist, the rest of Canada is in big trouble. Call him in the Financial Post. Mark is in Edmonton. How are you, sir? Thank you for the call, Mark. Go ahead and your thoughts. You know, I'm doing uh, great, Roy. Uh, one thing I did want to mention is that uh, I think what he pointed out is that it is an option. Uh, it's not an option that I want to go down. I, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a proud Canadian, but this prime minister is making, he's making it really, really tough. You know, he, he, there's, there's a line in the outlaw Josie Wales, and that's, that's more my vintage and probably yours and most your, most your listeners. But he says, don't pee down my back and tell me it's raining. Yeah. And this, this prime minister does it constantly. Yeah. You know, he, he constantly sows division, whether you're, you know, you're a man and, you know, that's just toxic, or, you know, whether, you know, oil is bad, or, yeah. or you know, the farmer, for instance, you know, she doesn't know what she's doing, minister knows better. I'm just getting, I'm just getting sick and tired of it. The, the, in all honesty, I'm not sure what we're getting from this confederation. I really don't know. I just know that we can't keep transferring money back east and getting nothing in return. All right, Mark, I appreciate your call, sir. Thank you very much. Just want to hear what you have to say. I'm going to read you two emails in a few minutes. Let's go to Calling Lake in uh, Alberta. Richard, go ahead, sir. What do you what do you get out of our uh, out of the out of the uh, the column and what's your thinking on the the question of Alberta and separation? Well, thank you for taking my call. Um, well, it's it's a fantasy because um, there are ten treaties, federal treaties, in uh, Canada with the indigenous peoples, and the latest one was in the news, the Lubicon Lake uh, settlement, which was a hundred plus years in the making. Uh, separate separatism, Quebec or Alberta or any province, could never happen until these treaty issues are one hundred percent resolved. So there are only 220,000 indigenous people in Alberta, and we just seem to be overlooked and we're like invisible to any of these discussions that occur. So do you know what's interesting? Have... You know what's interesting though, Richard. In 1995, yeah, our prime minister at the time, Jean Chrétien, stared into television cameras and and talked to Canadians across this country, and said, with the weight of the office behind him, 50 percent plus one wins. 
Yeah. There were no writers. There was nothing else. There was no. There were no bylines. I mean, you know what I'm saying. There, there were, there were, no, there were no conditions. It was the Prime Minister of Canada of the day saying, 50 percent plus one wins," and it came darn close to 50 percent plus one. Right, but again, it, now I hear you what know. you're. I hear what you're saying, but look, look, if people want out, they'll find a way to get out. Yeah, that's yeah. what happens in marriages, right? Right, but whatever political party, we our elections are coming up in Alberta, especially this spring. Maybe. How do you? But how do you feel if you set aside the the uh, the valid argument that there are treaties? The valid, I mean, it's not easy. But how does your gut feel? What is your gut telling you? As far as separating, well, it, or how you difficult. feel about this about this confederation in two thousand heading into two thousand nineteen? Like Canada? Yeah. Well, it's it's a work in progress, you know. We've only been around for 151 years, and it's 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 evolving. It's a it's a daily thing. But you know, I'm just saying that Indigenous people need to be included. Yeah, no, I don't disagree at, the at table all. in these discussions. Yeah. And uh, but logistically speaking, Alberta would be very difficult aside from treaties. We don't have any. Okay, Richard, I have to I have to be walk. I have to be fair to other people. Take some more calls. Thank I appreciate you, your calls, sir. Thank you so much. You bet. All right, bye-bye. Peter is uh, in Montreal. Hi, Peter. Thank you for the call. Hi. Good afternoon, Roy. Uh, you know, I remember Pierre Trudeau saying, uh, Canada's not indivisible. Canada's not, uh, sorry, Canada's not eternal. Uh, that, you, you know, he made the, that comment when he was alive. Um, so much of Alberta's trade is north-south. You know, I mean, so much trade in Canada, in fact, is north-south. It's mm-hmm. not east-west. And, you know... When you look at Albertans and, and Alberta's culture, they're not a globalist uh, culture, you know, the way the Trudeaus and the Macrons and all, and, you know, and the George Soros crowd and all that. That's not Alberta. And I think if there's, if, if you know, his nibs is reelected uh, next year in Ottawa, Trudeau, uh, we're going to see much more abrasion. We're going to have much more. I think this rift is going to become much more obvious. We see it in Quebec. I mean, look. Well, let me ask you. Let me let me ask you this. You have a premier who used to be a minister in a Parti Québécois separatist government. Right. He now says he's not going to. He's not interested in separation anymore. I don't believe uh, Leopard's going to change his spots. Uh, I think there's that sentiment somewhere in Francois Legault, and it'll come out probably in the not too distant future. Uh, but but what is what I left Quebec two years ago, and uh, and and I still always had that feeling that it's not too far away from the surface. And, and Lauren Solomon said one of the issues to consider is that if Albertans do speak openly about separation, and this becomes more of an issue, then Quebecers will sort of revisit their issue. What did you get the feeling? Quebec, you're absolutely right. I mean, separation is never far away, and Quebec always reserves the right uh, to advance its own uh, culture and interests and so on and so forth. Isn't that, that a, isn't that a great way to be part of a family? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, one foot is always out the door, ready to go out. And, I mean, that's been shown over time. The thing that may be changing that is demographics, of course, like demographics changes everything. Um, But uh, uh, it's not far from the surface. You're absolutely right. All right. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate your call. Thanks, sir. Uh, I I don't know if I'm going to have time to read these. uh, I don't think I'll have time to read the emails because they're lengthy. But I will, you know, we'll get at them in the next next week or so for sure. Uh, I want to get some more calls on. Jeff is in Edmonton. Jeff, thank you for the call. Good, sir. Are you on speaker? I'm not now. Oh, good. All right. So what, what are you thinking? Um, we've seen this movie for two generations now. Um, and Quebec does it. 
so that they can um, they can extort more concessions from Canada. We're getting it. Uh, I think the movement should start out here because we're getting messed over by Canada. It's a big difference. Are you getting messed over by Canada, or are you getting messed over by certain federal governments? Like, were you getting messed over? Well, no, hold on. Oh, were you, let me ask you this: Were you getting messed over when Stephen Harper was prime minister? <laughs> no, but he didn't do anything to improve the situation. Okay. Senate didn't change. Yeah. Uh, you know, we uh, the entire Western Canada which is more population than, uh, I think it was uh, Manitoba, uh, Manitoba, uh, Saskatchewan, Alberta, has more population than Quebec, and yet we have far fewer senators. Far, uh, fewer, far fewer seats. Far fewer seats in the Senate. Uh, there's no, in Parliament. That we, yeah, well, uh, we're, we're, not, we're not equally represented. No, you're not. We don't have equal weight in law. No, you're not. We don't, well, have, don't know about that. Most of our, most of our, uh, our institutions are weighted uh, to favor the East. And I think, uh, you know, I don't... I, I okay, don't so, so, so let me ask, Jeff, I'm up, sorry, I'm sorry, Jeff. How are you feeling? What's your gut telling you? Get out now. Canada will never treat us seriously if we're going to constantly kowtow to the same system. All right, sir. Thank you very much for the call. I just want to read you one line from uh, an email that came from uh, from Greg. He's in Oshawa, which is interesting because that's where the GM plant, uh, of course, is clothing, closing. He writes in part, let's read this. Alberta is an unfortunate victim of world oil price fluctuation. But their decision to live with low personal and corporate taxes, an all-but-empty heritage fund, profligate spending primarily on their huge public sector and a largely single-industry economy, represents an Alberta disadvantage. Uh, They are, to some extent, the authors of their own misfortune. If Alberta chooses to leave Canada, I will say the same thing if Quebec chose to leave Canada. Good luck and good riddance. We'll survive without you. Uh, Michael is in Toronto. Okay, hi, Roy. You know what I was going to say? I think a lot of people forget that Canada is a fragile federation, and at the beginning it took a while for a lot of the different provinces to sort of be convinced to join. And I think right now Western alienation is at the highest in Alberta, and I would not be surprised that if there ever was a vote or a referendum, if they would actually vote to leave because Ottawa is not paying attention to their needs. Did you get the feeling on uh, on July 1st, uh, 2017, mm-hmm. it was, wasn't it, yeah. on, uh, when Mr. Trudeau got up and r- r- listed all the provinces and left out Alberta? Did you, uh, did you get the feeling that that was intentional? I'm convinced it was. I think so. I think it's deliberate. I think everything that he's doing is deliberate to basically subdue Alberta and to snub them. Yeah. I don't disagree one bit. I uh, tweeted years ago that he must have been a delightful child when he wanted a toy. Oh, I think so. I think it's whatever he wanted, he got. And uh, I think he's used to getting his way and uh, not used to anybody sort of saying no or saying no, you have to wait. Thanks, Michael. Catherine's in Hamilton. Catherine, we have 30 seconds. They're yours. Oh, thank you. I love your show. Thank you. I, I I like in Alberta to a child. Who, or say teenager who's done everything right, uh, done its chores, and um, has been abused by the father, which is the prime minister. So the child or teenager, Alberta, ends up saying, "Okay, I've done my best. I've I've obeyed you. 
I've done everything I contribute to the family. Come here, I've got, I only have a few seconds. I contribute to the family, so you're not respecting me, you're ignoring me, you're blackballing me, so I'm going to leave. So I have compassion for Alberta, and I say yes. If Alberta wants to leave, they have every right to do so. Would we survive? Of course we would. Okay. We, we would find a way. But Thank Alberta you. Alberta has every right. Thanks for calling, Catherine. Adam Schiff, Democrat member of Congress, is quoted as saying, there's a very real prospect that on the day Donald Trump leaves office, the Justice Department may indict him, that he may be the first president in quite some time to face the very real prospect of jail time. And Representative Gerald Nadler, Democrat New York, said today that it would certainly, quote-unquote, be an impeachable offense if it's proven that President Trump directed illegal payments during his campaign. Nadler adds the latest indictments and filings brought by prosecutors against former associates of President Trump show that he was at the center of massive fraud against the public. That's the view of the Democrats. They're going to take control of the uh, of the House on the, in January in a few weeks' time. Ari Goldkind is a criminal lawyer in Toronto, media commentator. Well, Ari, what do we do with this one? Well, I think, uh, Roy, quite frankly, we have to separate out here what's a real story and what seems to be to just the partisan narrative. I think to undermine a presidency unfairly that President Trump undermines every day with his own ineffectual sort of nonsense, bumbling, low-class habits. It's one thing for him to do it to himself. It's another thing to try and turn these revelations this week into something impeachable. And do I think he will be impeached not for one single solitary second? Do I think there's a chance he will be indicted by the New York prosecutors who are openly out to get him? I think that's quite possible, not likely while he's sitting. But the narrative that most people should understand here has now been split into two, which is that he paid off the porn star, who I always think that term is used in a pejorative way for Stormy Daniels, and it never should be. She's actually demonstrated more class and grace uh, probably throughout her life than Donald Trump has, and the Playboy Playmate, same thing to her. To me, Roy, that continues to be as much of a nothing burger or given that we're on Sunday, so a lot of people like the NFL still, it's what you would call a ticky-tack foul. It is so low on the spectrum of possible offenses for Trump, I think people roll their eyes that this is what the Democrats continue to focus on. Bob Mueller, of course, not being a Democrat. Number two, Roy, and I think this is where it's more interesting, but far less sexy and isn't being discussed enough today. If in Trump's dealings, with Russia, with the Putin government, with his representatives. He, in a quid pro quo to get a hotel built or curry some favor, or because Russia had something on him given the tax returns that we've still not seen, if that led to the U.S. softening or weakening its traditional historical position on sanctions or involvement with Russia, that to me calls into question much more the oath of office that the president or any congressman or woman or senator would take, that to me becomes the area where if I truly wasn't in a partisan way examining this president, I would absolutely let these payments to these uh, two women go because the idea that that affected the election or if anybody found out he was sleeping with a porn star, somehow they were voting for America's cleanest, most loyal 
non-promiscuous husband. There isn't one of the 63 million voters, I think, in the U.S., Roy, who could have cared less about that. Yeah, I, you know, I looked at this, uh, this story, Ari, and I thought MSNBC and CNN are saying, bless Adam Schiff. We have another two years of nonstop material here. He may, Trump may get uh, indicted, but it'll be by the New York Times. Uh, and maybe the prosecutors, but there's no way an American president's going to prison. Not going to well, happen. No, not and not going to. And remember, again, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'll be more specific on the word ticky-tack fouls. As even one of the representatives on the, on the Judicial Committee, a Democrat, said, if you line up these offenses, if Trump was guilty, and I don't think for a second they could easily prove the Cohen thing. I think that is Michael Cohen. I, I, I actually, as a criminal defense lawyer who carries more secrets with me every day than you can imagine, I, I just think the idea of selling out your clients mm-hmm. continues to baffle me as to why so many people are so okay with it. But that's a conversation for a different day. Yeah, you know what? Even, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. We have about 45 seconds. Go ahead. Yeah, at the end of the day, do I think President Trump, despite how many people would love to see him step into jail, will ever step into custody? No. But on the Russia angle, which not enough people are focusing on, if you sell out your country for your own bottom line, that is where the conversation should move. We should never hear the name Karen McDougal or Stormy Daniels again. To me, that is a big, to use Donald Trump Jr.'s words, Roy, that is a big nothing burger when it comes to impeachment or jail time. Yeah, what, it, what occurs to me is it's so easy always to get headlines that Donald Trump's going to be impeached, and now it's going to be Donald Trump is going to go to jail, and those headlines are just that. They're headlines, they will gather dust, they'll go nowhere. This story is, is not over. It's, it's not over. More, much more to come. Ari, thank you so much. Always appreciate your time. Thank you, Roy. Ari Goldkind, uh, lawyer in Toronto and media commentator. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.